This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney, Paul Sarker. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, how's it going? It's going well. You know, I feel like spring is in full swing here in NYC. It's been a gorgeous week, sunny, bright, a little on the warm side. I'm not complaining. And the thing with spring and going into summer means it's like, event season, gala season. So I don't know about you, but this past week I had like an event after work every single night. I'm kind of a little burnt out, but I love it. Uh, the city's back and strong again. And I mean, sure, there's probably some concerns about like commercial real estate or whatever, but everything I can tell is just like the city is just so active and energetic and there's there's so much going on. Yeah, yesterday, I mean, just the weather is so great. You That's where you can really tell. Like people are out and about. People are yeah. packed into restaurants. They're in the parks. They're walking around. The subways are very, very busy. I was leaving work, going to a film festival, which we'll talk about later. And I wanted to just take the four downtown because it was in the East Village. Or, right, So I was going to Union Square. And I had to wait so long just to get on. There was like throngs of people. So... Yeah, it's been it's been intense in, in a good way. Although we got a taste of a little heat, and you know I, I don't like the summer heat in New York, but I'll take the weather that we have right now. Yeah, exactly. Like low eighties, mid eighties, I can do ninety plus. It's no no fun for me, especially when the humidity ramps up. But let's enjoy it while it lasts, I guess, and and hope that the summer isn't too brutal. So May is AAPI month, although we don't need a month to celebrate AAPI because you and I are both South Asian and we do our fair share of supporting the community. I did want to talk about, and we'll end the show with, our last segment will be the New York Indian Film Festival, but I just did want to shout that out. It's great to be a part of the community with so much talent in the creative and production and direction and everything. So I'm I'm stoked to talk about that. And then just one other update. I was on another pod this week which got released, uh, sorry, end of last week. It's uh, Jonah Perlin's How I Lawyer podcast. So he basically interviews leaders in the legal profession, typically people from public interest or law firms or the government, judges perhaps. And he asks them about their career and their journey. And it's targeted towards law students and 
maybe junior lawyers, maybe people wanting to make a transition, but he's a professor at Georgetown and his podcast is called How I Lawyer. So definitely, I get a lot of questions about my career path and how I get into what I do. And I, I can't necessarily take time to answer them all one-on-one. So for anyone that's interested, I think it's a good way to get that detail, which you wouldn't necessarily get on BCP. Well, congrats on that. And excited to hear about the the film festival later in the show. But let's kick it off with some earnings breakdowns. Uh, look, we've been talking the last couple episodes, we've been talking about just the media landscape and how things are very, very tough. And I, and I think nothing has changed. Uh, Disney came out with earnings. Paramount came out with earnings. And was starting off with Disney, stock was down almost 10%. I think it was like eight or 9% after it had reported and missed expectations. Streaming costs are still really, really high. They've lost some subscribers, but just overall, Iger is doing his best to really cut costs. You know, the, I think the estimate was like 5.5 billion for the year. He's slowly starting to narrow the streaming costs. You know, Disney Plus is, is you know, it's still like 157.8 million people. But they had lost some subscribers, and I think that was they actually lost 4. due 1 to million. I think they were planning; they were forecasting a, a two million gain, and they ended up losing four. So I think the delta between their projection and where they are is about six yeah. million. And from what I understand, that had to do with the Indian subscriber base with Hotstar, which was like they lost the cricket rights, so that had something to do with it. They also lost subscribers in the U.S. They lost. 300,000, but Disney also owns, you know, there's Hulu and ESPN. Both of those had gains. You're right. I mean, they narrowly missed the earnings estimate, I think by a penny, but the stock obviously fell 10% because the market is sort of jittery. And, you know, we talk about this a lot, the forecasts and everyone's like, what have you done for me lately? And there's a f- emphasis on short-term results and building businesses, especially something like a streaming product or a theme park business. These things take multi-year, potentially decade-long investments. So you can't necessarily say the money we spend today is going to bear fruit tomorrow. Sometimes you have to take the long view, but the market doesn't necessarily know how to factor that in. And some companies get like a grace period or some there's confidence in some where, you know, they're willing to stick out a bad quarter. But in this high interest rate economy, there's much more of a focus on immediate returns. And Paramount, they announced their earnings a week ago, but we didn't cover it. But I think their stock fell almost 30% when they announced they lost a billion dollars. That was due to them cutting their dividend. So obviously, you know, you own a stock, sometimes it pays a dividend, you get this dividend yield. It's essentially just paying you to own the stock, especially if they have good income and, and good cash. The dividend was around 24 cents a share. They cut it down to five cents a share which is a massive drop. And then the stock basically sold off from there. And Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has a 15.3% stake in Paramount. And he said, because they had the Berkshire annual event at the event, he said, it's not good news when any company cuts its dividend dramatically. Obviously you have some dividend cuts, like small percentage, but that was like a pretty big one. And in, in contrast, Apple, their media division, so Apple TV Plus Music Arcade reported $20.9 billion in revenue, and they increased their dividend and then also announced a, a share buyback. So it's just tricky, man. I mean, well, I Apple's think Apple's cash. obviously different. Yeah, Apple's got cash. Yeah, Apple's got, got cash different because businesses. of their, their devices, like the iPhone, the computers. Yeah. Um, obviously, their app store generates a lot. 
And, um, you know, they got their headset around the corner. Who knows? That could be a game changer. But so Paramount specifically lost half a billion in streaming, right? From what I understand, Paramount total loss, I think it was like 1.1 billion. And we'll get into this in the next segment. A big portion of costs for them in streaming is, you know, one of their biggest shows. Yellowstone. Well, it's a series. It's one of their biggest. It's their biggest showrunner. And I think he has like four or five shows for them. Yeah. Just back on Disney really quick. I mean, Disney park business is doing very well. So that actually went up. So at least they're they're putting a lot of their efforts into parks. Park is like a a multi-billion dollar business. And then the last thing I'll say about Disney is that we had talked previously about will Disney sell the rest of Hulu? What are they going to do? And then Iger actually said that he's now bullish on the combination of Disney Plus and Hulu after having some time to like just look at it, look at the numbers. He likes how it's performing. I think he said, so he said both, right? He said that, but then he also said everything's on the table. So like he said, everything's on know. the table in the previous like earnings. Oh, okay. He said, everything's on the table. And then now he said, well, I kind of like I like how it's performing. So I think he's potentially changing his mind on what he wants to do with Hulu. So who knows what we'll see. Well, Hulu, they spend a lot less on original content than peer services like the Netflix's, Disney Plus's, Paramount's. They don't spend as much on original content because they can sort of use all the other content within the Disney conglomerate. So they can use FX shows and ABC shows and, and everything else. And I think that gives them some synergies. You know, and I'm not a streaming executive, but I do wonder if it makes sense to have Disney Plus and Hulu in the same portfolio because it, it seems to me like Disney Plus's success is going to be as a wide-reaching general entertainment service. I understand they're targeted to families and kids, but it just seems like over a long enough timeline that those companies can't really coexist because they're more competitors than they are yeah. complements. But that's just, you know, I don't know. What you're saying about that is Paramount's thinking about the same thing, right? Because Paramount Plus, Showtime, potentially putting those together. And you're right, by the way, the direct-to-consumer loss of Paramount was half a billion. And also advertising fell 11% for them year over year. So I think everyone's just kind of trying to get those costs down. That seems to be the goal right now. Consolidation. Who knows? Let's see how much longer that's going to take for people to get done. And, and and we'll get into this in the next segment. But I just want so like, it's not as if these things are exact. And that's what I want to point out. Like when you make a budget for a show or a film, right? Like you're often doing that a year, two years before the thing is released. And the goal is growth, but growth isn't necessarily linear. You don't know whether a show is going to be a hit. So in hindsight, it's easy to judge this and say, well, they overspent on X, Y, Z. But I just want to know, like, these decisions are being made long before you know what the market conditions are, before you know how successful a show or a product is going to be. And you're sort of making your best guess. And like I said, streaming products specifically, because they're scalable in a way that, like, something like theme parks aren't, right? Like, no matter if you can't triple your theme park supply within a matter of years. Whereas once you make the product and you have a fulsome streaming product, you can go from 20 million to 50 million to 100 million subscribers pretty quickly because variable cost isn't that high. Whereas once you build a theme park, it's just so much infrastructure and real estate and takes time. You can't just triple the amount of theme parks you have as quickly. So theme parks are great diversified business. It's also counter cyclical, but it's not scalable in the way that streaming is. Right. And the, the street has shifted its preference. It was like growth overall else. All, you know, we understand streaming is going to lose money in the beginning. We just want to see bigger and bigger subscriber bases. 
And now companies are starting to respond and saying, okay, well, if we can spend 50% less and maintain our subscriber base, or maybe we lose, you know, a couple percentage points on our subs, that's still a more profitable business than just throwing money and trying to get every sub out there and losing money on content costs. Just to round it out, we didn't talk about Netflix, but they actually made 1.3 billion in profit in the first quarter and their subs grew a little over a million subscribers. So they're at 232. That's legit. And Peacock, they gained 2 million subscribers. So they're up to 22 million paid subs, but like all streaming platforms other than Netflix, they're expecting to lose 3 billion this year in streaming. Wow. Yeah, man. I mean, it is tough out there. The goal is to, like Iger said, focus on profitability, bring these costs down. I'm curious to see how that's going to transfer into budgets around film, TV. You know, is the power still going to be with these like hit shows and creators of those hit shows, especially when costs need to come down and there's a lot of pressure from shareholders, which will bring us to our next segment talking about Yellowstone and and some of the drama there when, when it, it comes to the creators' costs and, and how much money they're spending and all the spinoffs. But let's take a break and we'll, we'll come back and talk about Yellowstone. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. So, Mesh, you're right. There's this constant tug of war between spending to generate revenue and reining in costs. It's like, you know, been part of probably business as long as uh, business has been around. Certainly, Hollywood is no stranger to that. And as you said, we were in a transition phase where for the past couple of years, it was like growth above all else, spend, spend, spend to grow subs. And now Hollywood and the studio heads are trying to rein that in and be a little bit more careful, making sure every dollar goes as far as possible. And whenever stocks are down and the market is tight, yeah. the focus on spend gets a lot more intense. And so what we're going to talk about is obviously Taylor Sheridan, who is the showrunner of Yellowstone, 1883, 1923, Tulsa King and Mayor of Kingstown. So he's like basically the creative engine of Paramount Viacom. I didn't realize he did the other, like uh, he was part of the other two. Yeah, so actually, we discussed this in, in episode 208. And so one other thing I want to mention is, you know, and I've talked to some streaming execs about this. Not everyone can have a profitable streaming product. Maybe there's a handful. And it's part of, like, how much the market will demand. Like, is every consumer going to have 10 services? No, like maybe they'll have three or four, maybe five. But it's really a goal of these execs to be in the top four or five services. And so when you think about it, you start to list them out. You have Netflix, Disney, Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV Plus, Hulu, Peacock, Paramount. Like there starts to be so many 
of them, like if you're the eighth or ninth or 10th service, it may be just cost prohibitive to keep operating. You may be better off shutting that down and licensing your content elsewhere because running a service takes a lot of money. So I'm not saying this is specifically their goal, but if you're Paramount and you want to be in one of the top fives, like you need to grow. And the way to grow is with content that people sign up to watch and like they're willing to pay to watch it. And that's what Taylor Sheridan does. And to borrow a phrase that Hassan used last week, it was puts butts in seats. So Taylor Sheridan is a bona fide showrunner. He has had multiple hit series starting with Yellowstone. And basically Paramount brought the Brinks truck to his house or his ranch, right? And they were like, <laughs> yeah. we want to be in the Taylor Sheridan business. To his ranch, for sure. And and things got a little out of hand. And now the executives are sort of looking at the cost reports on Yellowstone <laughs> season five. And they're like, well, how did this happen? I'll tell you how it happened. The guy made three hit shows for you. He's a showrunner on at least two other shows or the creator on two other shows. And he's probably got five or six more shows in development. So someone on the revenue side was like, well, we just got to do whatever it takes to make Taylor Sheridan happy because we need to keep, we need his content to grow our products. And they have grown. I mean, Paramount Plus announced that they just hit 60 million subscribers. And a lot of that is on the right. strength of Taylor Sheridan's content. But at the same time, and, we're, and the Wall Street Journal did an article about this, which we're going to go through. I mean, some of these fees are just kind of like, um, and I've seen this before when I was at Marvel, not to this degree, but you know, once you have talent that's entrenched and like a big draw to fans, they know they have some leverage and they start to ask for things when they renegotiate their deals or when their deals are expiring and you want more movies or TV shows from them. That's like, well, you know, you got to, I want to make sure you have my hairdresser. I want to make sure you have my yeah, yeah, yeah. people, my acupuncturist, my whatever chef. Right. I want to, you know, Taylor Sheridan just took that to the next level. Well, it's interesting because the show centers around Yellowstone, piece of land, property, a ranch. And like, that's Taylor Sheridan's life, essentially. Like he, he lives on a ranch, he owns a ranch, he owns horses. And so what ended up happening is that a lot of, on top of his salary, the Wall Street Journal was reporting in the show, he rents cattle to Paramount where he charges, I think it was like $25 a cattle. He's uh, charging $50,000 to them to- That's Cowboy Camp. Yeah, yeah. That's Cowboy Camp. Cowboy Camp is training for actors to get familiar with how to like ride horses and dismount so they right. look authentic, right? Which is essential. Yeah. That is not 50000 a week. 50000 a week is to shoot at the ranch. So it's to film at his ranch. Sorry, yes. He yes. bought- um, on the strength of his overall deal, he bought a $341 million ranch, which is 266,000 yeah. acres, <laughs> called the Four Sixes Ranch in Texas. And he rents that. It's co-owned with his production, with the production company that makes the shows, 101 Studios. He rents that to the production for 50 grand a week. So it's like, yo, you need a location to shoot this dramatic, yeah, yeah, epic yeah. show? How about my ranch? Okay, I'll give it to you at a reasonable price, 50 grand a week. Where else, you know, ranches like that don't grow on trees. I guess you could call up Ted Turner or something, but like, it's not like there's that many of them. And No, that's true. So he bought this ranch that's almost $350 million and other investors in the ranch are the production company for the show. And then he leases it back to them for production at a you know, reasonable weekly clip. But there were other things that were aggravating, maybe not to that degree uh, in terms of like hitting the bottom line. But, 
you know, he wants his particular person to make the horseshoes and his particular people from Texas right, have right, to go right, out there right. and dress the set or arrange the animals. And I think there was one executive was quoted. Was a wrangler. Well, they, they were buying saddles for season five. And the executive was like, well, didn't we have saddles in the first four seasons? Like, right. why did we need to right. buy? And, and that's the sort of thing that gets looked at in hindsight. And I'd say this. This is maybe the most egregious case of this that I've seen, right? So you have a deal with Taylor Sheridan. And some business affairs exec is going to say, well, I got Taylor Sheridan on an overall deal. And this is what we're paying him to write and direct and to produce and it's all within the lines that we were budgeted in the ultimate. So like I did my job, I stayed within the threshold. And then what they may not necessarily disclose is, oh, we also have to use his ranch. We also have to use his crew. We also have to use XYZ. Right. Finding different buckets to put money in is part of the game. And then apparently he's notorious for coming in over budget too. So they're saying that 1923 costs 22 million an episode. To 22 make. million an episode. And, and just to yeah. get, so 1923, 1883, Yellowstone together costs, from what I read, half a billion dollars to produce a year. Yeah. That's a lot of dough. It is a lot of dough. And it seems excessive, right? Especially when we're talking about the writer's strike and most writers can't, can't afford to pay their rent. And they're like, adjusting for inflation, their income has fallen 23% over the past 10 years. Meanwhile, Taylor Sheridan has the golden ticket and he's spending half a billion on his shows in a year, which, I mean, sure, he's successful. And Paramount has been has said like, yeah, maybe we could be a little bit more careful with the cost, but we would do this deal over and over again. We wish we had more Taylor Sheridans because frankly, his shows are successful and profitable. I wonder where the balance is though. It's like, it's not like he can just get away with, I mean, it's not everyone is going through this right now from a, if you're a Paramount or you're Disney, like we just talked about in the last segment. And so like, everyone's trying to like cut these costs down. And so I wonder at some point it's. Well, so they're stopping Yellowstone after this season. They're going to go with a spinoff right, show. It's over. With that, well, no, it's not. So basically it's what they're doing It's is, over for Kevin Costner it's in over for Yellowstone. Kevin Costner. Yeah. So they'll bring back some spinoff show. I think, Matthew McConaughey is in talks to lead. Rumored. And I think that yeah. the cheaper the cheaper cast members will probably come back, but Kevin Costner <laughs> yeah. won't be the central yeah. character. You have like a whole staff of people that are there to watch the pennies and, and like oversee this. So there's like production accountants, there's finance people, there's people that are monitoring the budget and making sure that there's contracts and purchase orders and everything's sort of in line. And if there's an overage, that someone's there to approve it. And there, there may be someone that's like, hey, do we really need to shoot this over 10 days? Can we cut it down to eight? Because we're, we're like right. way over budget. And he may be flexible, but you've got to follow his creative vision. Yeah, I, I guess I'm saying like at some point, Paramount's got to be like, hey, man, stop. You can't do that. You can't spend that much money. You know, I mean, like at some point, you got to let this guy do whatever he wants to do. But I mean, these days, what is this? Yes, I'm sure everyone's looking at him. He's like the best, but... If everyone is going through the same things around cutting costs, like maybe his leverage deflates a little bit. We'll see. Well, so there are structures. This is a really complicated thing. I spent a lot of time managing this yeah. sort of stuff when I was at Marvel. It's very delicate because you want to be talent friendly. The guy's got to be like in the right mindset to create good content. And like I said, the bill for this stuff doesn't come due immediately. And if the, if the subs are growing, like if Paramount gets to 100 million subs, they're like, okay, we're happy to spend that money. 
It's if they're not growing, that's when you start to take a much closer look. But there's usually someone that has to answer to both the studio heads who are focused on the cost and the creative heads who are focused on the product. And that's a delicate balance, right? Because you want the people who are producing the content to be happy, to sing Kumbaya, to make the best thing, to put it on screen. And you want the studio heads to be happy with the budget. And sometimes you kind of have to massage both and say, well, yeah, we're going to bring this in under budget. Maybe it's a little bit over, but you know, it's too early to say. And then you tell Taylor, go do what you need, right? If you need the $25,000 a day for the whatever, then then just get it, right? Because we don't want the show to suffer. And and someone's got to make, make that work. Another way I've seen is you do a co-production where the creator has equity. And in, in theory, that was incentivize them to basically spend as Lower little- the- as possible, as as possible because they get the upside. But I don't think that's often how it works. Right. And usually there's some f- funky accounting and, and they may not think that they're actually, they may say, hey, well, the studio is inflating their costs too. And so it's almost like you just got to hope for the best and just pray that the shows are still profitable. Just to round that out, that makes me think about James Gunn. You know, like the guy, especially after I, I said this last week, but about Guardians, like, he just makes stuff so well and it's so great. Whoever, you know, in this case, DC gets to have him and and I hope hopefully he'll do very well from them and, and pay this guy what he's worth. Yeah, but you know, think about it. Like the guy at the top, Dave Zaslov, is known as being a cost cutting right. guy. And the first thing right. he did within the, you know, first couple months of <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Discovery joining up with Warner Brothers was he was like, All right, Batgirl, you're done. All these shows seven or eight shows that were sort of good, but not necessarily profitable, canceled, right? Like Westworld, yeah. which I thought probably needed. Yeah, man, that I, I was a fan and that thing went off the rails at some point. It was probably really expensive, I imagine. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just never exact, right? You want to be as careful as you can be, but it's impossible to sort of predict with exact certainty how a show is going to be. And sometimes things are over budget. And ultimately, like when you have someone as important as Taylor Sheridan, you have to keep him happy. Yeah. Well, let's take a break, Paul, and let's come back and we'll talk about the film festival you just went to. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, Mesh. So yeah, NYIFF, New York Indian Film Festival is in Manhattan this year from May 11th to 14th. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to the opening night. 
So it's it's in its 23rd year. They actually didn't do it for the past three years because of COVID. Yeah. It's put on by the Indo-American Arts Council. So shout out to Suman Galamudi and Asim Chabra. I think the director, he was there. The opening film was three of us. He was there. He led the Q&A with the director and the lead actors. There was a awesome red carpet scene, really great time. And like I said, I went Thursday after work and it was just you know gorgeous day, sunny, having the red carpet. There was some champagne, maybe a little bit too much. I don't know. It was a great event. <laughs> and I got on the red carpet. I'm part of this South Asian media group, which is Ron, I've mentioned this in the past. There's some folks at Paramount to take the lead on scheduling this stuff. And this was their monthly event. And we have talked about the growth of Indian entertainment. We talked about it in episode 28 when we were talking about Triple R and cricket rights. And then again in 207, I mentioned that I saw All That Breathes in LA and I met the director, Shunak Sun. Jess and I met the director. Jess actually set that up. And that was nominated for the Oscar for Best Documentary. It didn't win, but you know he was a great filmmaker. And there's so much talent. And India is now, I think, you can check this, the, the most populous country on the planet. So... Of course, like Indian film and television has been a staple of content for a long time, but it's nice to see that recognition is increasing in America. And that leads to a lot of a lot more exposure for young up and coming talent, of which there's a ton, right? And there's like right. directors, actors, actresses, producers, all of whom are young, up and coming. And then there's established ones as well. And there finally seems like they're they're finally getting their shot. And I'm just thrilled that it's happening and happy to represent a few if I can. War would be better, but it was a great event. And I want to talk about the film. Yeah, what was the film that you watched? It was Three of Us, which is directed by Avinash Arun. He's, okay. a, I think, Mumbai-based. Started his career as a cinematographer, and he, he's directing now. I think he's directed three or four films. He's a young guy. He's maybe a, a, a year, year and a half younger than me. But he was so down to earth. And the film starred Jaideep Alawat, Shafali Shah, and Swanan Karakere. So it was like a taught relationship psychological film about love and how time can pass and how things can change and how the world can sort of evolve around us. Things that aren't really within our control can have huge impacts. And so I really liked the film. I mean, it wasn't like a blockbuster by any means. I'm sure the budget was probably pretty small, but the acting, the cinematography, the score, the setting were just great. I highly recommend it. The majority of it takes place in Konkan, which is like this beautiful, lush, natural environment, which is a far contrast from Mumbai. So the lead couple live in Mumbai and the wife, it's like all of a sudden she's like, hey, I want to go back to my childhood home. Can you take a week off work? Huh. Like, the husband says, let's schedule this out. And she's like, no, let's go like now. And they go back and it's her exploring the place she grew up in, like her schools, her relationships, her friendships. And then she's there with her husband. It's a very interesting take. And I think a lot of us think about, you know, where we grew up and how that impacted us and how that formed us. And we don't necessarily have an opportunity to go back and appreciate it. I mean, some of us are fortunate enough to, but we're so caught up in the day to day. Right. And so there's a lot of really good poignant lines in the film, like being torn between a busy life and a simple life, the contrast between being strong while also being vulnerable, and can you be both? A lot of us are at different times in different ways, but the film really explored all of that. And it's hard to describe it in words, but I would recommend that you watch it. So I was actually thinking today, like, uh, you know, 
little overcast. Want to go watch a movie. Don't really know what's out, but I'm thinking maybe I go. The festival's still on, so I could probably go yeah, watch it. Yeah, it's on, it, yeah. Right? In the East Village, just go down to the Angelica on um, 12th and 2nd. Oh, right it's, I was literally just thinking today. I'm like, ah, maybe I'll go see what's playing at the Angelica. I didn't realize it's at the Angelica. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple other theaters, but that was where the premiere was, and I think it's where the closing okay. is. I highly recommend it, yeah. I'll, I'll go watch that and uh, report back, but I think that's awesome, man. I mean, thanks for putting it on my radar. I, I, I didn't know. Yeah, there was like a red carpet, which... I sort of crashed. I'll, I'll we'll put some photos <laughs> in the Instagram. And then there was a Q&A with the filmmakers and the, the lead stars. And there was an after party at Sona, which is, that's actually a, a restaurant in Flatiron. I think Priyanka Chopra Jonas is an investor. And cool. so there was a lot of cool actors there. <laughs> Shura Sharma was there. He was in Life of Pi. Oh, yeah. That was great. I was literally just on my Fandango app because I'm excited to go. To, I, I love Angelica. I think it's just like a, such a New York establishment. So I'm excited to go check it out. Three of us. Yeah, that's great. You'll enjoy it. All right, Paul. Well, thanks for educating us on the film festival. I'm going to go check out that movie. That's our show for this week, folks. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us on Instagram, Better Call Paul, the podcast. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Oh, happy Mother's Day. I'd be. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Barry happy, the lead. Happy. Happy Mother's Day. Happy uh, Mother's Day to our beautiful, talented, strong mothers. We'd be nothing without you. This weekend's for you. See you next week.